1: The
0: Peter Shift Show. Thanks to ExpressVPN for supporting my podcast. If you believe your data is your business, then secure it yourself. ExpressVPN will secure your privacy and protect your information. Visit expressvpn.com/gold and you can get an extra three months free on your one-year subscription package. Well, today, the U.S. stock market finally had an opportunity to react to the much stronger than expected non-farm payroll number that was released on Good Friday, and the Dow Jones surged into record territory up 373.98, almost 374 points. It's a new record. We closed at 33,527.19. That's a record close. The intraday record high, 33,617.95. The S&P 500 also hitting a new all-time record up just under one and a half percent. It closed at 4,077.91. It's intraday high, new record, 4,083.42. The NASDAQ composite, not a record, but the biggest gainer on the day, up 225 and a half points, 1.67%, we settled just above 13,705. But you know, the biggest loser, although not a loser, just the smallest gainer on the day, was the Russell 2000. Now, when I originally talked about how the futures markets were reacting to Friday's non farm payroll number, it was the small cap stocks, the Russell 2000 futures that were up the most, but that gain quickly faded early this morning. And so this ended up being the weakest segment of the market. And again, the Russell 2000 would be the index that best captures the domestic economy. And that was the index that was the weakest. So again, to me, this is more about multinationals uh, and about stronger economies overseas than it is about a strong U.S. economy, because if it really was about a strong U.S. economy, then maybe those stocks that are most connected with just the U.S. economy would have been the biggest gainers. Instead, you had the biggest gainers in the bigger multinational companies that derive their earnings globally rather than concentrated in the U.S. And in fact, the narrative that continues to circulate on Wall Street is one of a stronger U.S. economy that is stronger than had been forecast, forcing the Fed to adjust policy and to start increasing interest rates sooner than the Fed currently expects. That's the narrative that's out there. But you have to realize that this is a false narrative. Yes, we're getting some strong numbers. And in fact, we got more stronger economic numbers that came out today that I'm sure will reinforce this narrative. We got the PMI composite index that was released. This is for the month of March and the level was supposed to drop somewhat from the February number of 59.5. The consensus was for a drop to 59.1. Instead, we ended up rising to 59.7. So not only did we beat the consensus, but we increased on the prior month rather than the decline that was being uh, expected. And in the service index, That was supposed to expand from 59.8 to 60. It did expand, but it expanded to 60.4, so a stronger expansion than had been expected. We did get one softer data point that came out on factory orders for February. They were looking for a decline of 0.5, and we got a decline of 0.8, so somewhat greater decline than had been expected, although the prior month was revised slightly up from 2.6 to plus 2.7. So we declined more, but from a higher level. But the number that was the strongest, certainly relative to expectations, but also in the absolute number, is the ISM service index for March. The February reading was 55.3, and it was expected to improve to 58.6. Instead, it exploded higher all the way up to 63. .7. So a much stronger than expected number. But again, you have to expect the service sector to come back after all the service sector was the biggest casualty from the COVID shutdown. So now as a lot of these businesses that shut down are reopening and Americans are out and about, they're traveling. I mean, I can certainly see that firsthand now the resort here where, you know, where I'm living But, I mean, it is full. I mean, there's people everywhere. I mean, people haven't been traveling, but now Puerto Rico is loaded with vacationers. So people are traveling that weren't traveling before. They're eating in restaurants. They're going to bars. They're doing all sorts of things that they temporarily stopped doing. And so now that they're able to do that, well, sure, the service index is spiking. But you have to also bear in mind that one of the main reasons that it's coming back as strong as it is, is because of all the cash that is now burning holes in the pockets of Americans. But where did that cash come from? It came from the US government. It was printed into existence by the Federal Reserve. It is the stimulus that is propping up the consumption and the spending. And of course, a lot of these service sector jobs rely on a lot of goods that have to be imported in order for the services to be provided. And this, of course, is helping to fuel our record high trade deficits. But this is not legitimate economic growth. Also, I still believe that there are a number of Americans who are not paying their rent, who are not paying their mortgages, who are not paying their student loans, right? Because there's still moratoriums on all those. And so that's also freeing up a lot of cash that can now be used to you know, consume services that prior to that was being used. Uh, in rent payments or student loan payments. Now consumers have a lot of extra cash. But in theory, at some point, they got to start paying their rent. In fact, they got to start paying the rent that they missed. I mean, it's not a free rent. It's just that, you know, you don't you can't get kicked out. But ultimately, you still owe the rent that you didn't pay. But a lot of this spending is basically borrowed from the future. And a lot of it is purely a function of of the Fed and the stimulus. And that's why I think the forecasters are wrong in thinking that this strong economy is going to cause the Fed to raise rates sooner. And in fact, even if you look again at the bond market, the yield curve, and I talked about this in my last podcast, the spread is continuing to narrow between the 10s and the 30s. We had yields on the 10-year Treasury up 0.41 basis points today at one72 But the yield on the 30-year only rose by 0.23 basis points to 2.363. So again, what this is showing me is that bond investors are not really worried about inflation. If they were worried about inflation, the yield curve would be widening. They would be more concerned about a 30-year treasury than they are about a 10-year treasury. What the bond market is pricing in is higher interest rates to successfully fight off inflation. And so investors don't believe that the higher rates will be as big a problem for a 30-year bond as for a 10-year bond because the 10-year window would include uh, the higher rates over the next few years necessary to fight off that inflation. But the 30-year rate would probably start to factor in the next round of rate cuts after the Fed pushes the economy maybe into recession at some point to successfully fend off inflation. But this is not going to happen because we don't really have a strong economy. We have a lot of spending, but it's not the result of economic strength. It's the result of money printing. In other words, inflation. Inflation is what is powering the entire economy. How is the Fed going to fight inflation when inflation is the only thing the economy's got going for it? It's the only thing the market's got going for it. It's the only support to the economy and the market. It's the only thing that keeps the government spending. Inflation is the only reason that we can have an infrastructure bill, because Inflation is what's financing it, meaning the expansion of the money supply, the printing of money. So there is no way the Fed is going to sever the only lifeline that the economy and the markets have. So rather than reacting to these higher GDP numbers by raising interest rates sooner and maybe tapering its asset purchases sooner, it's not going to do any of that at all. So the markets have it wrong. The Fed is going to ignore an inflation threat that's actually greater than is generally perceived. They're gonna do nothing about it. Uh, and interest rates are gonna stay low. Real interest rates are gonna to continue to get more and more negative, and eventually this story is gonna unravel. Meantime, based on this belief, you're getting pressure on gold, which did not really rise today. It was relatively flat. Gold was down less than two bucks, about 17, 28, 29 an ounce is where we close. Silver was off about seven cents on the day, 24.84. Again, this is all the narrative that the Fed is going to be raising rates due to a stronger economy. Meanwhile, the dollar did not respond today to that narrative. The dollar index was actually down 0.4. So a pretty weak day across the board for the U.S. dollar. And even though gold was down a bit, Gold stocks were generally higher to unchanged on the day. So they didn't go down. A few of them managed to go up. You know, There was a positive report or article over the weekend in Barron's about uh, Barrett Gold. So that's one of the few positive stories that I've seen. But again, most of the stories I've read are about why you don't want to own gold, because rising interest rates are bad for gold, because the strengthening dollar are bad for gold. But of course, the dollar isn't going to strengthen. The dollar is actually going to fall off to new lows. They're also saying that the strong dollar is going to be a negative for emerging markets and commodities, right? Maybe that's one of the reasons too that you saw a big drop in the oil price today down about $2.70 a barrel. People expect a more aggressive Fed and a stronger dollar to weigh on commodity prices, but they're wrong. We're not going to have a more aggressive Fed. We're going to have an easier Fed and all that is going to help support even higher commodity prices and it's going to be very supportive of emerging markets again the Fed can't fight inflation the Fed is deliberately creating inflation because that's the only reason that everything isn't collapsing so the Fed is not going to stop creating inflation in fact it's going to create even more and as I said on a prior podcast I think the next recession is actually going to be caused by inflation it's going to be rising prices that cause consumers to cut back on what they're buying. I mean, they may be spending more, but they're going to be buying less because the stuff they need to buy is going to cost more money. So they're not going to buy as much stuff. And that means a lot of the companies that used to sell that stuff, they're going to have to cut back. They're actually going to start laying off workers because they're not selling as much stuff and because their costs are going up. Not only all their raw material costs and other costs but their, their labor costs are going to be going up. And look at insurance costs. I mean, a lot of people aren't talking about this, but that storm in Texas where uh, the power was out for, what, a week or two, it was cold, a lot of these pipes froze, a lot of structures flooded, there is tremendous damage throughout the state of Texas, and this is also going to hurt a lot of these insurance companies because when there's a hurricane, usually people have much higher deductibles. So the insurance companies aren't exposed as much. But here it wasn't a hurricane. Uh, It was just ice that caused uh, these pipes to burst. So all the normal deductibles are going to end up applying. So this is going to be horrific uh, claims. So the insurance companies are going to lose a bundle and therefore... They're going to be raising premiums in order to recover these losses. Of course, in order to pay out these claims, they have to start selling some of their treasuries that they might hold or stocks or whatever they have, because these are some really serious claims. There is some big exposure as a result. So look, prices are going to be going up across the board for everything. And I think that's what's going to push the economy into recession. And of course, how is the Fed going to respond? To increasing inflation that pushes the economy into recession? Are they gonna fight the inflation and push the economy into a deeper recession? Or are they gonna ignore the inflation and create more of it in order to stimulate the economy either out of recession or to try to prevent it from entering one? Obviously, it's going to do the latter. And when the markets figure that out, gold's gonna take off and the dollar's gonna get clobbered. Also, I think it was pretty significant today that you had Janet Yellen in her new role as Secretary of the Treasury. She had her first press conference in this official capacity. And it really is quite telling with respect to not just Janet Yellen, but the entire agenda of the Biden administration. And what she really wanted to talk to the American people about, as if this was good news, is that she wants the United States to lead the world in creating a global minimum tax rate. Because according to Janet Yellen, it's a big problem if U.S. companies go abroad to benefit from lower tax rates that other countries may have. And so what Janet Yellen wants is for these other countries that have lower tax rates to raise their tax rates higher to some kind of global minimum so that Companies won't be able to avoid high taxes by relocating into countries uh, or jurisdictions that have lower taxes, right? This is what she wants. And so she wants to put a lot of pressure, and the US, by virtue of the US dollar being the reserve currency, is in a position to exert a lot of pressure on other countries to comply and to increase their taxes. But we should not be celebrating this new transformation, really. Of what america means and the message that america is sending out to the rest of the world because we're not this shining city on a hill uh, that ronald reagan spoke of right we are not really the leader of the free world what we're trying to do is lead the world into diminishing freedom into being less free because taxes equate to freedom the more taxes you pay the less freedom you have the government takes your money then you have less And so what we want is for there to be less freedom and more taxation throughout the world. That's the opposite of what America used to be. In fact, America used to lead the world in low taxes. We had no income taxes at all. The reason America became so rich and prosperous is because we didn't have a big government and therefore we didn't have big taxes to support it. We didn't have a lot of regulations. We had a lot of freedom. And so we had a lot of prosperity. We had a lot of ingenuity and creativity and The reason that so many people came here is because they could be free. But now it's the opposite. We want to go around the world and see countries that are freer than our own because they don't have taxes as high as ours. And we want to force those nations to become less free, right, in order to make it easier for America to turn up the heat on its own citizens. And, you know, right now, it's just a minimum corporate tax rate that they want to impose. But, you know, if we can get the world to agree on a minimum corporate tax rate, what's the next thing? A minimal personal tax rate. After all, individuals shouldn't be able to escape the tyranny of high U.S. taxes by moving to countries that are not as tyrannical, right? Let's have a minimal level uh, where we're going to impose taxes around the world on everybody. And this, is, again, is a very dangerous, slippery slope that we are sliding down. I mean, first of all, I know a lot of people think, well, you know, we need to stop, you know, we need to crack down on these tax havens, right, because people are avoiding taxes. Look, you are benefiting from tax havens, even if you're not living in one. The fact that there are a lot of nations that have lower taxes, that is what keeps the nations that have higher taxes from raising them up even more. I mean, governments have to realize that they're in competition, that capital and people are mobile. And if they tax them too high, they may move to a lower tax jurisdiction. So those lower tax jurisdictions, even if you are not personally benefiting from those lower taxes because you haven't moved there, your taxes are actually lower because of those alternatives. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, if it wasn't for these tax havens, Uh, I could pay lower taxes because there's these people who are avoiding taxes. And so if they were here in America paying taxes, I would pay less. Not a chance. I mean, the government doesn't even care. I mean, the tax revenues are irrelevant to what the government is spending or what they're even taxing for that matter. I mean, the government is printing a lot more money than it collects in taxes. The truth is, because there are low taxes abroad, That's why taxes aren't even higher at home. So because of the various tax havens around the world, keeping pressure on the high tax countries and stopping them from raising taxes even more, everybody's paying less. So everybody is paying less taxes as a result of tax havens, whether you personally live in a tax haven or not. But if the governments are successful in forcing these tax havens to raise their taxes, right? So that they'll be less free, just like, America, then it'll be easier for the United States to increase taxes even further because it knows that people have no alternative. There's there's no escape. Now, personally, you know, I don't think this is going to work. I think a lot of countries aren't going to want to increase their rate of taxation because they're going to understand that it'll have negative effects on their economy. In fact, it's interesting that the reason that Janet Yellen says that she wants to force other countries to raise their taxes, is because she wants to make sure that those nations uh, have the resources to invest in public works projects. Well, why? I mean, because in order for the government to have more resources, the private sector has to have fewer resources. So what Yellen is saying is that we want to make sure that these foreign governments remove greater resources from their private sector. Well, why is that in the interest of those nations? The reality is the fewer resources are consumed by government, the more economic growth you're going to have. The United States grew far more rapidly during the 19th century than it did in the 20th century. During the 19th century, we had no corporate income tax. We had no personal income tax, but we had much faster economic growth and the standard of living of the poor, the middle class increased far more rapidly during that century than they did during the 20th when we had all these taxes. And so all these other countries, I mean, when I look around the world and I want to invest, there is a correlation. The lower the taxes are in a country, the faster the economy is growing, the more prosperous the people. Now, also you want to look at government spending, not just taxes, because generally lower taxes means less spending. And if you have a country where the government is spending less and taxing less and not running deficits, you have more prosperity, not less. And what Janet Yellen wants to impose is the opposite. She wants these countries that are enjoying more economic freedom and greater economic growth than America to change their policy so they have less freedom and slower growth so they're more like the United States, right? Which these other countries should reject. But the mere fact that this is what we're advocating shows you how different America is today, how profound the change and the direction in which we're trying to lead the world. Instead of leading the world, towards greater freedom and less government, we want to lead the world towards less freedom and greater government. And that is not the direction that the world should want to go in. That's not the direction that America should want to go in. And everyone around the world should reject that. And remember that we need tax competition. See, governments don't like it, but the people have to like it because the people want low taxes and the government wants high taxes. So as a taxpayer, you want lots of competition so that you can get the lowest taxes possible because that's what competition means. Governments compete with one another for capital, for citizens. What we don't want is for the governments to be able to collude with one another right, for the purpose of eliminating competition and creating like a cartel of nations that are no longer in competition with one another. And so they can set prices, which in this case would be the taxes. And so really what Yellen wants and what Biden wants is not global competition among nations, but global collusion to a giant global cartel of governments so they can price fix their taxes as high as possible. That's the opposite of what people want. We want competition and low taxes. Governments want no competition. They want monopoly and they want high taxes. So this entire agenda needs to be resisted to the greatest degree possible. Did you know that there's hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to. They don't have to get your consent and they don't have to pay you a dime. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connections get rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is always masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the very best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. In fact, one of the ancillary benefits that I've found since I began using ExpressVPN is not only do I get privacy, but I also get access to a lot of sites and a lot of content That would otherwise be restricted based on my location. I live in Puerto Rico and there's a lot of sites that I can't access. There's content that are restricted to people in Puerto Rico. Well, when I'm on ExpressVPN and all those sites think I'm in Florida, all of a sudden I gain access to content and sites that would have been denied to me had I not had ExpressVPN. So if you're like me and you believe that your data is your business, then secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com gold and get three extra months free. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash gold. Go to expressvpn.com gold to learn more. And finally, I want to turn my attention to another controversy that has been brewing uh, over the last several days, maybe over the last week. And this has to do with the way corporate America is reacting to recent legislation in Georgia that is aimed at having a more honest election. I mean, that is the goal, to have less voter fraud and to make sure that the votes that are cast are legitimately cast by people who are eligible to vote. And so they have a new uh, bill that has all sorts of uh, new uh, criteria, new changes to the voter rolls. And of course, this has got everybody up in arms. And they're saying this is terrible. Uh, You have corporations trying to cancel events, Major League Baseball, airlines. I mean, all kinds of backlash against Georgia for passing this law. And of course, there was a lot of allegations of voter fraud in the last election, whether they were legitimate or not. I mean, it certainly makes sense for the Georgia legislature to be concerned that maybe there was some fraud. And to the extent that they can change their rules to have less fraud, then they would have a more fair uh, and a more free election. And Really, there shouldn't be a protest to that, but there is a lot of protest. And of course, a lot of people are saying that this is racist, that what they are really doing amounts to racism, which I think is complete nonsense. But before I even get into that, I want to talk a little bit more about voting, right? Because voting is not a right. And a lot of people think that we have a right to vote. No, we don't. Voting is a privilege. It is not a right. And one way that you understand this is look at the Constitution of the United States. Look at the first 10 amendments, right? The Bill of Rights. That's where our founding fathers laid out the most important rights that they believed Americans had. And among those rights, you could read them the first 10 amendments. You've got freedom of speech, freedom of the press, right? Uh, Freedom of assembly. You've got the right to bear arms, to be secure uh, against unreasonable searches and seizures, Uh, no excessive fines. You're guaranteed the right to due process. That means a speedy trial. That means trial by jury, right? There's all sorts of rights that uh, are secured. But you'll notice there's nothing in there about the right to vote, right? Because there is no right to vote. You'll also notice there's nothing in there about a right to education, a right to health care, a right to housing, because you don't have a right to those things either. But you don't have a right to vote, right? Voting was left up to the states, Right? The states were to determine the criteria for voting. And the Constitution has nothing about what the criteria are going to be, whos who can vote and who can't vote. It was completely left up to the states to determine the criteria for voting. And of course, voting is a means to an end. right? What we really want is good government, which is defined by limited government, government that... Uh, secures the rights of its citizens, but doesn't try to uh, oppress them, right? It's about securing what you have, not giving you what you don't have. Uh, The government that governs best governs least. Uh, The founding fathers understood what good government meant, and that was their goal. Uh, Elections uh, were a way of achieving that goal. But the idea was not to have maximum participation. It wasn't to make sure that every idiot votes. That was not what they wanted. Everybody wanted to have an informed, intelligent electorate to try to have a better outcome. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, personally, right, I would rather live in a society where I could not vote because I did not meet the criteria. But the people who did, I trusted their judgment to elect more competent leaders, right, than if I was in a situation where I was allowed to vote, but my vote would be canceled out by some idiot. Right. I mean, if everybody can vote and everybody, you know, the majority of the people are foolish, then my vote's not going to matter because I'm going to get canceled out. Uh, But if there's people who are going to be more responsible, whose judgment I trust, I'd rather have them vote even if I can't. So there were all sorts of criteria that states used. Right. And each state had its own criteria as to who could vote. Right. And now, look, there were qualifications based on owning property based on uh, literacy, based on paying a tax, right? They had poll taxes. And sure, you know, a lot of states, women couldn't vote, right? Well, why why back then were women not voting? Well, because people thought, well, women are at home. They're not out in the business world. Uh, they don't have the same understanding that men might have of the issues. Uh, and so we don't want them to vote because they're probably not going to be informed. Now, of course, There would have been certain women that maybe were more informed than the men. But again, they were looking about broad generalities, not about, yes, there are going to be some women that are going to be more competent than some men. Just an aggregate on average, they figured, you know, if we just don't let women vote and we just have men vote, well, then we're going to have uh, more knowledgeable, more responsible uh, voters. But that was the thinking of the day. And that criteria may have worked based on the social norms that existed back then. Clearly, it wouldn't make sense today. I mean, just as many women are in the workforce as men. uh, And so uh, gender would be no basis on which to have a voting restriction. But back then, it was. Similarly, right? A lot of, you know, slaves couldn't vote, right? Um, And and for obvious reasons. Uh, But clearly today, I mean, we don't have slavery. And so there's no reason to exclude people uh, based on race or some of these uh, statistics. But Age was obviously a factor. I mean, little kids can't vote, right? But it was up to the states to set their own criteria. So voting wasn't a right. You didn't have a right to vote. It was a privilege and a responsibility that you would exercise. And so if you were granted that privilege, you can exercise it and your responsibility and cast your vote. And so, no, we don't have a right. And what Georgia is doing today is very mild compared to what states routinely did in the past. And, you know, nobody said anything about it. In fact, the first time the Constitution did anything to restrict voting was in 1870. That's when the 15th Amendment was ratified. And that was the one that said that you can't discriminate for voting based on race or based on whether or not people used to be a slave, right? But mainly race. So if you want you can have any criteria you want. Up until the 15th Amendment, states were free to impose any criteria they wanted on voting. They just couldn't impose race. So whatever applied to whites had to apply to blacks equally and any other race, which is fine. And I'm all in favor of the 15th Amendment. I think that was a step in the right direction. Now, the next time... They put a restriction on voting wasn't until 1920. So another 50 years go by. And during those 50 years, the only thing that states can't do is pass a restriction that is based on race. I mean, they can have literacy tests, they can have property qualifications, they can have poll taxes, just so long as those taxes apply equally to whites and blacks or the Chinese or, you know, Asians, whatever race, right? Right. So 50 years go by. The states could do all kinds of stuff to restrict voting. Then 1920, it's women's suffrage. Now the women are given the vote for the first time because the 19th Amendment says you can't restrict voting based on gender. All right. So that's the second restriction. You can still have a poll tax. You can still have property qualifications, right? You can still have literacy tests. Just you had to apply them equally to women and men. You couldn't just say women can't vote. Right? Whatever whatever qualifications were going to apply to men would apply to women equally. So that was 1920. Then the Constitution was not changed again for another 44 years. This is 1964. That's when they eliminated the poll tax for the first time, 1964. Right, I was born in 1963. So up until 1963, you could tax people to vote. Could you imagine if somebody tried to do that today, if there was a $100 tax or a $1,000 tax on voting, you wanted to vote, you pay a tax. That was legal. Any state that wanted to have a poll tax could have one until 1963, right? So then 1964, no more poll taxes. Now, personally, I know a lot of people think that's terrible. Why should people have to pay to vote? Well, you know what? If people had to pay the vote, they're they're gonna be more responsible voters. I mean, that was the whole thinking. I mean, hey, you wanna vote? Pay the tax, and then you have a say. You know, taxation representation. Pay a tax vote. Uh, it was a common thing uh, for a long time. But now you can't have poll taxes. But again, I am not a believer in democracy. Neither were the founding fathers. America is not supposed to be a democracy. It's a republic. There are some democratic aspects to the American public. Yes, we do have elections, but you know, when the, the republic was founded. The president and the vice president weren't elected by the people. They were elected by the electors in the electoral college. Only the House of Representatives was elected by the people. The senators, they were appointed by the state legislatures. Now, those state legislators would have been elected by the people, but the senators themselves were appointed by by the legislatures. That was changed by the 17th Amendment. That was in 1913 that that changed. And I think that was a change for the worse. I think we the states had more power uh, when the legislators appointed the senators than when the people elected them. But that was, again, all this was part of the populist movement uh, to make the country more democratic and less Republican. And a lot of these uh, amendments did that. But I think that they were a mistake in large part. Now, I'm very much in favor of the prohibition against women voting. And in fact, even if that wasn't there, even if we didn't have the 19th Amendment in today's day and age, I don't think any state would make gender a qualification for voting because it's irrelevant. It wasn't irrelevant 250 years ago. It seemed like a pretty reasonable way of limiting uh, the electorate to people who were more informed and more educated in the issues, but it would be completely irrelevant today given the fact that women are equal to men in the workforce or employment and things like that. Certainly race race would be an irrelevant issue even if the 15th amendment didn't say that you couldn't discriminate based on race it certainly was relevant you know when we had slavery in the United States made a lot of sense uh, but it makes no sense now I mean slavery didn't make any sense but in the context of slavery yes it would make sense that states were not letting the slaves vote but we don't have any slaves today and there is no reason to base who can vote on what your gender is Right? And so even if these amendments weren't there, I don't think any state would have uh, these uh, restrictions on voting. But I do support the fact uh, that there are no restrictions based on those criteria. But I would prefer if we had other restrictions with some criteria, not just based on, hey, let's have everybody vote, because I know what the outcome of that is. And you know, for all the people out there that are fans of elections, you have to bear in mind, Hitler was elected. Right. Again, not that I'm comparing modern America to Nazi Germany, but you have to recognize that Hitler came to power through an election. The people voted for him. And so just because the people vote for something doesn't make it right. You know, if 51 percent of the people vote to steal the money from the other 49 percent, That doesn't mean it's right. That doesn't mean it's moral or legitimate just because there's an election and the majority has spoken. The majority can be every bit as tyrannical as one dictator or one king. And that's what our framers knew. And the purpose of the Constitution is to protect the minority from the tyranny of the majority. Anyway, getting back to the amendment. So the next time the Constitution was amended was seven years later after the poll tax was eliminated. Seven years later, we got the 26th Amendment, and this said that states could not deny people the right to vote who had turned 18, because prior to that amendment, pretty much every state had set the voting age at 21. And why 21? Well, 21 was always considered the age of majority. That's when you can enter into contracts. That's when people were thought to be adults. And so that was the natural age that states picked for when you could be eligible to vote at 21. Now, of course, just because you were 21, it didn't necessarily mean you could vote, right? Initially, there could have been all sorts of other things like literacy tests, like property qualifications. You'd have to own some property or the payment of a poll tax. There was all sorts of things that would determine whether or not you were eligible uh, to exercise the privilege of voting. But one of them was age. And so what the 26th Amendment said was, hey, you can still discriminate, you can still set age as a criteria, you just can't make it higher than 18, right? And so now all the states are at 18. You know, there is a movement now. People say, hey, we should lower the voting age to 16. Well, I mean, there's no reason that a state can't do that on its own, right? Certainly, if the federal government passed another amendment to the Constitution to force all the states to allow 16 and 17-year-olds to vote, they could, But any state that wants to allow 16 year olds to vote can do it right now. They just can't set the voting age at 19. They can set it at 18 or any number lower than that. They could do 17, they could do 16, they could do 10. If a state wants to let 10 year olds vote, they can do it. But the whole purpose of having people wait till they're 21 to vote was that by the time they're 21, they would be more informed, uh, they would be more knowledgeable, they would have more experience. And in fact, A 21-year-old, back at the time where the American republic was formed, the typical 21-year-old was already married with kids, right? Was working, had a business. I mean, because most people were finished with school by the time they were 12 or 13. So they had been out in the real world a long time. I mean, if we were going to have a voting age today that was more consistent with the 21 that it was uh, back when the republic was formed, the voting age would be about 30, and I'm fine with that. I mean, I would be fine with a voting age of 30, and I would have been fine with it when I was a teenager and couldn't vote because I would know that most of my fellow teenagers were a bunch of fools, and they were, they were going to vote for socialism. I mean, you know, there's an old saying, if you're not a socialist, by the time you're 18, you don't have a heart. And if you're not a conservative, by the time you're 30, you don't have a head. So I don't want people voting until they have a head. I don't want people voting with their hearts. I want people voting with their minds. Because when you vote with your heart, you can create a lot of problems. It's not that people who are voting with their head are heartless. It's just their head understands the impulses of the heart. And the head can reason and think about the unintended consequences of these type of policies. So we really should have a much higher voting age, not a lower voting age. But the reason that the voting age was lowered from 21 to 18 was the Vietnam War. Because of the draft, right? What they were saying is if you're old enough to fight, you're old enough to vote, right? Well, no, you're not. I mean, first of all, I'm against the draft. So number one, I don't think that we should be conscripting uh, people into war. I think if the government wants to fight a war, then it needs to have a volunteer army. And if you can't get volunteers for the war, then maybe you shouldn't have a war. If the public doesn't support the war, then don't go to war. I mean, that's simple. But when the public doesn't support the war, then you have to draft. Right, which gives you a good idea that you shouldn't be going to war. But to say that if you're old enough to fight, you're old enough to vote, that makes no sense. That's like saying if you're too old to fight, then you're too old to vote, right? So the only people who should be allowed to vote are the people who are subject to the draft, which again makes no sense. Fighting and voting are two separate things, right? I mean, think about this when they lowered the voting age to 18. Most states still had a drinking age of 21. So they're saying, hey, you're responsible enough to vote to pick the leaders of our country, but you're not responsible enough to have a drink. That made no sense. I mean, why wasn't the drinking age lowered to 18 as well? The fact of the matter is the skill set for voting is different than the skill set for fighting, right? Fighting, you need to be young and strong, right? So youth is an advantage in a soldier. It's not an advantage in a voter. In a voter, you want some wisdom that comes with age and experience. So it makes sense to have older people voting and not young kids that have no experience. So the the two things are completely different. But of course, with all the political pressure on the day, they ended up caving in and lowering the, the voting age. But of course, the Democrats love this, right? The Democrats always want to dumb down the electorate. The dumber, the better. The more people that vote, the better, because if they have more people voting, uninformed voters, voters who are younger, who don't understand things, then they're more likely to vote uh, for these harebrained schemes and more likely to support socialism. So that's why uh, the Democrats always want the, the, the largest number of people voting. But if you want good government, if you want freedom and prosperity, then you don't want to turn over the future to the whims and and the emotions of the majority. You want a more responsible electorate, and therefore you want to limit who's voting. But unfortunately, we don't do that today. The only thing that we're trying to do, the only criteria that we actually have to vote today is to prove that you're actually a citizen and that you live here and that you're 18. That's it. That's how low the bar is. Anybody can vote, right? Somebody who's on welfare has the same vote as somebody who's paying millions and millions of dollars a year in taxes. Doesn't matter. You can be illiterate. Uh, You know, you could have been your entire life on welfare, never run a business, never paid a nickel in taxes. But your vote is just as important as somebody who's, you know, running businesses, employing hundreds or thousands of people, paying millions of dollars of taxes, right, totally supporting the government, paying all the taxes versus somebody who's doing nothing to support the government, nothing to provide employment, nothing to help the economy, just sitting back and living off the productivity of everybody else and cashing government welfare checks, that person has the exact same vote as as the other person. That that's where we are. The only criteria we have is if you're going to vote, just prove that you are who you say you are, right? That's basically it. And this apparently is too much, right? Because you got now a lot of people saying that what Georgia is doing is an affront to democracy and it's racist. And, you know, one of the reasons they're saying it's racist is because they think that these policies will disproportionately impact people of color, African-Americans or know, maybe some other minorities, which to me... I would be very offended if I were black and somebody was this patronizing to me because why is, let's say, requiring identification? Why is that racist to require identification as if somehow black voters aren't as competent as white voters in obtaining identification? I mean, how difficult is it to get an ID And yeah, I get it. Not everybody drives. Well, they have IDs that are not driver's licenses that have your picture on it. I mean, first of all, you can't even survive in America today if you do not have an ID. I mean, think of all the things in America today that you need an ID to do. First of all, you can't open a bank account or a brokerage account unless you have an ID, right? That's, you know, you got to have that. You can't buy a gun in America unless you have an ID. You can't rent a car without an ID. You can't check into a hotel without a valid ID. You can't get on an airplane. You can't board a plane unless you present identification. You can't enter a bar, right, without showing ID. You can't buy a pack of cigarettes without showing your ID. So if it's racist to ask somebody to show their ID to vote, then it's also racist to ask somebody to show their ID to open a bank account or rent a car. Or board an airplane, which, by the way, you know, you have uh, airlines like United Airlines criticizing Georgia for wanting IDs, but they're, they're getting IDs. They're not letting people on the airplane. Now, I know, you know, they're just complying with U.S. federal regulations. They have no choice. But the fact that they routinely ask people for IDs, it's not racist. What is racist about requiring an ID? Let me go over some of the things that this Georgia law, right? Some of these new requirements that have been uh, imposed that are so objectionable. So one of them is for absentee ballots. So if you want to request an absentee ballot, you no longer can do it six months before the election. You have to do it within three months of the election. Now, to me, it doesn't seem to matter whether I'm doing it within three months or within six months. I mean, What's the big deal? I mean, so there's just a shorter window of time with which to request an absentee ballot. Also, there are new stricter ID requirements for the absentee ballots themselves, which seems reasonable. I mean, how do you know who's requesting an absentee ballot? I mean, they're not even in person. So it makes sense that if you're requesting an absentee ballot, that your request come accompanied by some valid identification. So they make sure that when they're mailing out an absentee ballot, that the person who's going to receive it is actually qualified to vote. I mean, what is unreasonable about that? What is racist about that? Nothing. Now, also what they're doing is they're also changing the way absentee ballots are sent out. They will not be able to just mail absentee ballots to every voter, right? Every voter gets an absentee ballot. And then if they want to fill one out, they can. The way it's going to work in the future is you have to request an absentee ballot. And if you request one, well, then you can get one. I think that's how it is in a lot of other states, right? I don't. I think most states just don't mail out absentee ballots to everybody. Uh, but Georgia in the future, if you want an absentee ballot, well, just ask for one. I mean, how is that racist? I'm not planning on being at a polling station or I don't want to physically go down to a polling station. So let me contact uh, the voting registrar or whoever it is in my account. And I'm just going to request an absentee ballot. I'm going to provide the required uh, identification so they can vet the application and make sure that I'm actually a registered voter, uh, uh, authorized to vote. And then they're going to send me the application. I mean, what's wrong with that? Apparently, also, it makes it harder to vote if you go to the wrong polling station. All right. I mean, it's not impossible. It's just harder. But just go to the right polling station. I mean, how hard is it to figure out where your polling station is and then go there? You know, the reality is if people really are not smart enough to get an ID or not responsible enough to have an ID to figure out where their polling station is and show up at that polling station. Why do you want these people voting? I don't. It's just assumed that they don't vote. Again, but the Democrats want every fool voting because the more fools that vote, then the more people are going to vote Democrat. They're going to vote for free stuff. I want to limit the number of fools who are at the polls. So we have a better chance of electing a good government. So sure, yeah, if you can't figure out where your polling station is, if you can't figure out how to get an ID, I mean, this is not rocket science, right? And if you can't figure it out, then don't vote. And, you know, how is this racist? It's only racist if you assume that it's blacks who can't figure this stuff out. I'm not making that assumption. If you're making that assumption, you're a racist, they also want to give the legislature more control over the state election board. And apparently this is a big deal because the legislature is controlled by Republicans. Well, it won't always be controlled by Republicans. In theory, it could be controlled by Democrats, but they're not trying to have more control over it to rig it. They want more control over it to make it more honest. There's also something about you know, passing out food or water or how close to the voting line you can come when you're doing this stuff. I mean, you can still do it, but I think it has to be a certain uh, number of, of feet away from the polling station. In fact, I remember that rule when I ran for Senate in Connecticut and I went down to the polling site, I had to stand a certain number of feet or yards, I can't remember, away from the polling station because I couldn't really bother voters when they were too close to making their vote. So I think some of the reasons that they want to keep uh, people who maybe are passing out food or water a certain distance from uh, the polling site is so they're not there influencing the voters Uh, while they're online under the guise of hey, I'm going to give you a drink of water. Hey, here's a drink of water, but vote for so-and-so. So So they're trying to say, hey, look, you know, you got to keep all this activity further away from the polling site so that you're not interfering with uh, the voting. It's not that they're trying to deny voters some water. They just don't want these people, you know, using the water as a way to get in there and to get around other restrictions that limit campaigning, right, actual campaigning, Uh, at a certain uh, distance from the polling site. But none of this stuff is bad. None of this stuff is racist. And all of this, again, is extremely mild compared to what states used to do and what they still can do. Because again, look at what's in the Constitution as far as what can be restricted. I've already went over that, but the only limitations that currently exist on what a state can constitutionally do to limit who's allowed to vote. They can have any criteria they want. They can do anything they want just so as long as it's not based on race, that it's not based on gender. They don't require a poll tax and they allow everyone over 18, right, to participate. Now they could be disqualified for another reason, but you can't disqualify people simply because they're not 18, You can't disqualify people simply because they're female. You can't disqualify them simply because they're black. But there's all sorts of reasons that are not listed in the Constitution that every state is free to disqualify voters if they don't meet some type of arbitrary criteria that they want to set up. And you know what? None of the states are doing it. The only thing that any states are trying to do is make sure that if you vote, you're actually legally authorized to vote. And they want to make sure that you only vote once, right? You don't vote twice. You don't vote three times. They want to make sure that the people who are voting are still alive. You can't vote after you've already died, right? Very, very basic stuff. And the fact that you have uh, these corporations trying to virtue signal how woke they are by feigning outrage at Georgia for doing Nothing that one would not say is completely reasonable with respect to wanting honest votes being cashed. As far as I'm concerned, all of these companies, all these organizations that want to boycott Georgia, we should boycott them.